and welcome to the weekly summaries of the Good Shepherd Bible Study. I am your host, Miller Ansel, the church planning intern. We are a Bible study and longing to be a church plant of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church here in Southwest Houston. So if you're in Southwest Houston, we meet in Stafford at 3211 South Main Street in a church building called Grace Center. We'd love to have you out. Also, please check out our website at gsbiblestudy.org, as well as like us on Facebook at Southwest Houston Reformed. This is week seven on our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Last time we had discussed the ways in which Christ came to fulfill the law versus the way that the Pharisees had perverted the law and a seeking of self-righteousness. And so now we're going to look at the first three of six illustrations that Jesus gives as to just how the Pharisees were wrong and did not understand Mosaic law properly. But before we get going, we need to introduce a few matters. One, Jesus is not giving us a new morality, right? He says, you have heard it said, but I say, this is not something new. Instead, Jesus is contrasting himself with the perversions of the law by the scribes and the Pharisees. And we know this from four reasons. One, if you look, if you're in Matthew 5 with us, and you look at verse 43, the last example paints the picture very clearly. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, loving your neighbor comes from Leviticus 19.18. The scriptures do say that. The scriptures do not tell us to hate our enemy. How absurd. It's something made up by the Pharisees. So for one, Jesus is showing the clear perversions that the Pharisees and scribes have come up with. The second reason is that you have heard it said is quite different from it is written. Jesus' introductory formula for scripture is it is written, not you have heard it said as he uses here in Matthew 5. So Jesus sets himself up as an opposite authority of the scribes and Pharisees. Thirdly, Jesus has already confirmed his continuity with the Old Testament. In verses 17 through 20, he says, I have not come to abolish the law but or the prophets, but to fulfill them. He's not opposing the law, uh, which is very clear from the fact that he does not say, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say murder. Uh, no, he's not opposing the law. Instead, he is fulfilling it, and everything he says is in line with the Old Testament. And fourthly, we can say Jesus loved the Old Testament. Consider in the previous chapter of Matthew, Matthew 4, Jesus does not debate Satan upon a new authority. Instead, he says as he always says when he introduces scripture in verse 4, it is written. In verse 6, it is written. In verse 10, be gone Satan, for it is written. Jesus loves the Old Testament so much, he quotes from it, he lives it out in the entirety of his life. Well, so what then are these perversions that the Pharisees are coming up with? One is they're trying to make the law more keepable. They're trying to make it more permissive. 
They're trying to make it less restrictive. They want to say, like a lot of people in our day and age, well, it's not like I murdered somebody. It's not like I cheated on my wife, so I get to go to heaven, right? Well, that's to miss the point. In fact, the Pharisees even missed Deuteronomy 6.5 that tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. It's not just outward actions. Jesus is going to emphasize this very thing that the Pharisees had missed. And so, for our first example that Christ gives, Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So right away, Jesus affirms the sixth commandment, which is do not murder. But he also opposes the Pharisees' misunderstanding, which is that murder is only an outward act. Also, the Pharisees' misunderstanding that you're only liable to the courts, to judgment. When Christ says judgment here, he's talking about the human uh, civil judge. And the Pharisees seem to be denying the ultimate consequences of a divine judge that they might stand before. But Christ takes it a little further, doesn't he? It's not just an outward issue, it's a heart issue. Jesus also deals with our anger and our words that we must not have an unholy anger and we must not use words that tear others down. Right? We cannot hate our brother as 1 John 3:15 reminds us everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, you might be wondering what these words mean that Jesus says. Many uh, translations talk about raka. If you call your brother raka, well, that is to think of your brother as a worthless fellow. We cannot think of our brother or sisters as worthless fellows, as they are uh, co-heirs in Christ. We also read the term fool, not according to the uh, understanding of Proverbs when we call somebody a fool, but in this sense, it is to vilify a person, to vilify your brother. I think Matthew Henry sums it up well when he says, Malicious slanders and censures are poison under the tongue that kills secretly and slowly. And so while our tongue does not murder somebody outwardly, it does murder them inwardly. It tears them down and gives them less life. Jesus goes on to give two illustrations, one from worship. That it's not enough to not murder, and it's not enough to just guard our mouths, but we must guard our hearts as well. That if you remember in your heart you have hated your brother, you need to go to him. This also gives us some insight even into our own worship. As Reformed people, we love the regulative principle of worship, that is worshiping God according to only the ways that he has told us to. And yet, even if we get that perfectly right, and we hate our brother in our heart, we are not worshiping properly. As John Murray 
wrote, acceptable worship and ethical integrity are inseparable. It doesn't matter how strict and perfect you follow the regular principle of worship if you have no ethics. The second example Jesus gives is one of going to court and dealing with reconciliation. And we learn from this that while we do not engage in physical and verbal murder, we do engage in urgent reconciliation. It's the urgency really in both the examples that is put out before us. Quickly go to your brother and resolve your issues. Ephesians 4.26 reminds us, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Then Jesus goes on to give the next example of lust. In verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks with, at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So again, we find the Pharisees uh, interpreting the seventh commandment not to commit adultery. But they ignore the fact that adultery is a heart issue. A heart issue that comes to the heart through the eyes. Christ recognizes that just as Job does. In Job chapter 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How could I gaze at a virgin? It's through the eyes that the heart comes to lust. Uh, so what do we do? How do we stop ourselves from lusting and committing adultery? Well, Christ says, gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands. Uh, don't take it so literally as Origen did in the early church and actually emasculate himself, which thankfully the Council of Nicaea in 325 would prohibit any emasculation. Instead, this is a picture of physical mortification that shows our need for spiritual mortification. We are called to spiritually address this sin issue, uh, which is a big one that plagues the church. How many Christians leave uh, through the doors of sexual immorality on the way to hell? Too many. And so really this call to not lust is really going back to the Beatitudes. It's a call to be pure in heart. The Puritans talked about the plague of the heart. Calvin wrote of the heart as an idle factory, but we are called to seek purity. We must continue to seek it and to mortify anything that causes us to sin. The last issue that Jesus brings up um, for our purposes this week is divorce in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, subjects like this deserve a systematic study. It's not enough to just simply go over these few verses. For example, 1 Corinthians 7.15 the Apostle Paul talks about desertion as a grounds for divorce, and he is absolutely right. Uh, desertion and sexual immorality are grounds for divorce. Another systematic uh, 
text we might go to is Matthew 19, 3 through 9. It's there we find that the Pharisees ask Jesus, can I divorce my wife for any cause? And Jesus says, no. Well, what does Jesus do? Uh, he doesn't engage them in a discussion of what are the grounds of divorce. Instead, he's very interested in the institution of marriage. He says, you need to know the purpose of something in order that you don't abuse it, because the Pharisees want to abuse it. And so when the Pharisees ask about divorce, Jesus reminds them that God created marriage so that a man and a woman would become one flesh. They would no longer be two, but one. And yet the Pharisees persist. How come Moses commanded us to give our wives a certificate of divorce? And Jesus again corrects them, saying, He didn't command you, but he allowed you to get divorced because of your hardness of heart. And this exchange in Matthew 19, 3 through 9, really shows the way, the light way, that the Pharisees viewed divorce versus the importance that Jesus attached to marriage. Jesus takes marriage very seriously. The issue isn't what can I get away with and how can I divorce my wife? Rather, it is how can we stay married? How can we be reconciled? Even going back to uh, the point about murder. Reconciliation is incredibly important. And so as Christians, we must uh, seek these very things. We must seek to not only not murder our neighbor physically, right? That's pretty easy to do, but we ought not to murder our neighbor in our heart. We ought not to murder our brother in our heart. Do we sit in our congregations thinking terrible things about our brothers and sisters? And we also must not commit adultery, just not outwardly with our physical bodies, but also in our heart, which really gets down to Jesus' third illustration of divorce. Do we realize the purpose of marriage as a picture of Christ in the church, how Jesus so loved his bride that he died for her, and that we ought to submit to his teaching in such a way. So I invite you to continue to put your faith in that one who died for his people, who loved them so much that he was willing to undergo the torment and the pain of the cross that sins may be paid for. And please come back, join us next week as we examine oaths, as we examine retaliation and loving our enemies.